my new solution for a creative team was to hire the type of creatives that just get shit done. That's all I needed. I just needed 12 of those. It was not good. That is not what makes an amazing creative team. An amazing creative team is made of the neurodiverse person who rolls in at 11 and says it's a turkey with a pumpkin head. It's people who think differently, who have different work habits. It's the one who's there at 6 a.m. and the one who doesn't roll in till noon, but is there till midnight. It's the one who's always got to go to the opera and the fine art museum to get inspiration. It's the one who always has to work alone. It's the one who always has to work with five people. Great creative comes from diverse diversity, diversity of culture, of mind, of language, of I'm getting chills now. It is that, that's the juice. Welcome. I am your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. This episode is going live on Christmas Day, so if you celebrate Christmas, Merry Christmas to you. If you follow the show, you know that sometimes on episodes that come out on holiday weeks, I do things a little differently. And this episode is no exception. This week, we're putting the spotlight on creativity. My guest is former colleague and dear friends, Lynn Pulsifer. She's the founder and chief creative officer of Salty Cactus Creative, a boutique branding agency based in Austin. She's also a painter and a filmmaker. In our conversation, we talked about her path from the arts to advertising, what makes Ray creative, how you build a creative team, and the push and pull of creative dynamics in a team setting. One more thing. Before we get into this episode, if you have missed it, please go back and listen to last week's episode, number 118. It features Dugri, a venture that uses music, content, and education to give voice to a moderate Israeli-Palestinian narrative. The conversation between the two founders, Uriah Rosenman, an Israeli educator, and Samez Azakut, a Palestinian actor and singer, is one of the most powerful and moving interviews that I have ever recorded. And now, enjoy my conversation with Lynn. Lynn, it's great to have you here. This episode is going to be released on Christmas Day. I'm going to take the people behind the scenes and let them know that today when we're recording is not Christmas Day, but it's kind of it a little bit for me because it's such a gift to have such a fabulous, creative person and one of my favorite people that I ever worked with in my career as a guest. So Lynn, welcome to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. Thank you so much, Dino, and uh, returning much love to you as well. Lots of amazing memories. Let's start with the same question that I always ask my guest, which is introduce yourself to our listeners and you can take as little or as long as you want. My name is Lynn Pulsifer and uh, I am the owner of an all-female boutique creative agency called Salty Cactus Creative. I am in Austin, but spend a lot of time and am from New England. Therefore, the salty and the cactus coming together. Um, I also am a painter and have recently, I think, created space and given birth to more of that in my life, which is really wonderful. And you can see my paintings at lynnpulsifergallery.com. So that's the yin and the yang of my 
creative or producing life, I guess. <laughs> There's other dimensions to me. Those are the work things. Yeah. So let's talk about the start of the creative journey. How did that start? And then the journey from sort of the creative into the advertising world. I think it's probably important to go back, but stay high level, if that makes sense. I am definitely seasoned enough. I'll say that as a lovely way of saying I have lots of experience. I started way back in, you know, like many people just loving to draw, going to a really good fine art university, a fine art program, U UMass Amherst. Um, I was very young. I got there and I had no idea what I had gotten myself into. I did not see myself in Greenwich Village sharing a studio with eight people and waiting tables. It just didn't, you know, I thought, well, I thought I could do something with this in business. And so, you know, you discover yourself when you discover yourself. There may be lots of people who know what they're going to do when they go to college. I don't know. I didn't. I still think it's, it's a tough one. Fast forward, though, I learned so much about painting and the physical form and the foundational principles of art in the classic sense. I would say the truly Italian classic sense, as a matter of fact. And then I took some time off. I went to the Art Institute of Boston. And again, I leaned into illustration and then did uh, some design and typography from there, I walked out of college with an illustration portfolio, quickly found out that that is also a freelance gig. I wasn't, maybe I wasn't the brightest person. That's not true. <laughs> I found myself interviewing with people in art school who weren't necessarily foundation or fine artists, but were really good in advertising. And I found myself interviewing with them for work from them when four months ago, they were my peers. So I think it was a hard pill for the ego to swallow. Like, did I pick the wrong thing again? And so I say all that to say it's definitely a journey. And it's a definitely a journey of trial and error. I felt like I was always following my passion to create, but I didn't always know what was going to resonate. That said, I moved into graphic design, etc. And down the road, wound up freelancing for quite a number of years. I worked for a really great Swedish company in Cambridge called EF. I don't know if you know them. Ed will tell you or share a little secret. The first time I ever came to the United States was in 1982 when I was uh, 16. And I spent a month with a family in Vermont in a program that was organized by EF. So I am very familiar with EF because I was a student that it was my first exposure to this country. Yes. And so I had the fortune of working in the publications department as an art director, graphic designer, because EF, of course, at that time was doing lots of catalogs to teachers and families, Europe, they're all about travel and language um, for anyone out there who's listening. And it's fascinating. And it was owned, um, I think it still is to this day, owned by a Swedish gentleman named Bertel Holt. And the organization in Cambridge was small enough that I had, you know, um, some access to the folks there. Then a lot of very personal things happened in my life. And fast forward, the next step after EF was pretty much advertising, for sure, with another chunk of time off, though. I want to ask you a question, which is going to be a little difficult, but I think it's really important. So most people who don't work in advertising think 
of the creative advertising process as something that is soulless and just aimed at getting people to part their way with their money for some product. However, the best creative that I have experienced, some of which was produced by you, comes from a combination of three things. On one hand, yes, the market needs and the audience that you need to reach. But on the other side, the connection between the authentic voice of the brand and the authentic voice of the creative person. And so I am wondering if you would be willing <laughs> to take us into the journey of that process. How do you balance those three forces? Yeah, that's such a great question. And <laughs> it is only now that I'm so comfortable answering it. It has taken decades for me to, what I would say, sol not solidify it, because it's always mutating, <laughs> but to solidify it to a degree where I understand there are for me and in my journey as a creative, having led many creatives, there are three uh, ingredients, so to speak, and they are empathy, emotional intellect, but truly intellect as well, and artistic ability. All three are to me the the sort of alchemy that allows you to listen enough to an assignment whether it's a brand service or product and to get underneath and and listen for what is in it for the consumer i mean with the exception of very few services and products there are there is good somebody needs this thing for some reason that is not bad so I think the trick is in finding it. And I think the empathy, intellect, and artistic talent together allows for the room and the partnership to listen. Just, you know, not to, and I know you are the host of this show, but why did we love working together so much? I always felt heard. Thank you. I always felt heard by you. And I'm assuming the same is true. For you. Yes. You're bringing up a really important point because in the course of the work that we did together, it wasn't always, oh, we are 100% on the same page here. Mm -mm. Right? There's a, there's a tension that goes between the... Strategy and creative? Yep. <laughs> yes. And the way that you come out of that tension with a superior product is exactly what you're talking about. The ability to put yourself in the shoe of the other person in that process. And then, you know, in my case, I'm putting myself in your shoes when I'm talking to you and in the shoes of my client when I'm talking to my client. But it's really the ability to listen, to be able to work through your disagreements to get you to something more as opposed to get into a conflict. Egoless. Egoless. I have a big ego, but... I do too. But f for the good of the project, I mean, I would say, I don't want to speak for you, but me showing up with a lot of passion for my idea in a way is sort of this like dark chocolate covered in this little ego shell. Mm -mm -mm. You know, I am so excited about this is what I think it needs to be. That just means I have some conviction and there's definitely ego. There's healthy ego anyway, right? There's some healthy ego there. So, but being open that someone might come over and crack that dark chocolate shell thing I have that's so perfect in my mind 
and say, wait a minute, okay, not being attached. Maybe it's lack of attachment. Out of what you just said, there's two questions. I'm going to start with the first one, and it is the importance of ego and what ego must look like in the creative process overall. Sometimes people think about egoless the wrong way, or they don't realize that there's no creative process without a strong ego from the creator. What's your perspective on that? Well, passion and conviction, right? Like passion, conviction, inspiration, insight, um, an amalgam of also lots of experience. Yeah, the, I, I, I think we're kind of going into more of the healthy ego. Just I would say a really great analogy, it, which is what I think you're getting to is when people say, you know, being kind is really important. Being kind does not mean being a doormat. Exactly. But it's critical for a rich life and for openness and understanding and growth. But it doesn't mean doormat. So I think you're right in kind of reining that in and making sure we're talking about it in a clear way. Yeah, and you know, and this is more for like there's a young creative person listening to this. You put out some very great creative things in a lot of areas, and, and we're going to talk about some of the other arenas, but you know, think about somebody who's going on this journey. You know, what are the sort of like pieces of advice, how to think about this idea of ego, how to negotiate on the behalf of themselves, advocate? Oh, yeah. How to, you know, kind of stand in their own power, but also not kind of crush everyone around them. You mean that sort of that like healthy ego that is indicative of, a, to me, a long lasting and exciting and rewarding career in, in creative, which you can have. I would say a few things. One, <laughs> this is the hardest one. Don't be attached to your babies. You just don't. It's, it's the hardest one to learn. I actually learned it in fine art school when my, you know, fine art, you know, I had done the best nude charcoal drawing of, you know, the semester and my instructor just ripped it up and said, and move on. You've been look, eyeing that thing. You're never going to get better. Move on. So being able to let go of your beautiful babies is important. Specifically, if we're talking about professional, like advertising, creative career, or design studio, or film studio, if we're talking about a collaborative space, so let me just caveat that. If you want to just create your beautiful artistic babies at home, I suggest you paint, which I also do <laughs> because people don't ask you to change those. If you're looking at a career and you want to make films, you want to make movies, you want to uh, make campaigns or TV spots or whatever, um, then it is collaborative. And so the first thing you need to know is that like you have to get comfortable with other ideas and, and with maybe that your first idea is not your best idea. Maybe. So once in a while it is. So it's very interesting to bring this up because my next question was, you know, still thinking about collaboration, something that goes a little bit in the opposite direction of what you just said. And it is the question of integrity, Re sort of reframing your statement that you need to be able to let go of the babies. So I think the most difficult skill that you learn, and a skill that you learn with reflection and experience, is finding the line, your integrity line of what you're willing to give up and what you're going 
to not give up and you're going to walk away if you need to give that up. So how do you develop that skill as a creative person? You fail at choosing the right moment <laughs> and you learn from failing. I, I, I would love to make it sound a lot more uh, elegant and beautiful. I think you first are very attached as an artist and you want to fight for every idea you have. And uh, that instinct is not bad. That's probably even necessary. When you walk into, and I'll give a place we work together as an example. If you're in a really large creative department, right? And you're surrounded by other creative, it's, it's very competitive, by the way. Our business is, does not lack competition and intelligence and fast thinkers and great idea makers. So it's very competitive and you almost need to have a bit of that. Like we were talking about that healthy ego. You have to be willing to fight. You have to be willing to learn how to communicate your idea in a powerful way that might just change somebody's perspective. And there are times you're going to fight for the wrong thing and you're going to have your proverbial ass handed to you. And there are times when even if your idea truly, probably even objectively is the best, it's not going to be the one that goes forward. So I think finding the balance comes with experience and time. It comes with not fighting when you should have and fighting when you shouldn't have and kind of learning the difference on your own. I really do. I'm wondering if you had and would be willing to share an experience where you actually didn't fight for something and ended up regretting it. Uh, yeah, I do have one. Wow. I have one that's really good. I can't believe this came to me. So I'm on set. I'm in Atlanta. I'm working with a brand new producer for a documentary slash it's marketing, but it's in the documentary format, right? Intimate interviews with people who have had experience with whatever product or service we're selling. And I'm working with a brand new executive producer who the agency had hired and he's from Los Angeles, you know, and he's got pedigree and he's got his, Resume is name drop city. Boom, boom, boom. And I look, uh, we are on break and I go and, and, and I'm being pushed very much. You know, I'm feeling this, but I'm being pushed away because he's the executive producer from Los Angeles. You know, I'm in, from Atlanta. And I go over and look at the camera that the director of photography is manning. Something is very wrong. <laughs> Where the film is overexposed. I mean, I am, I know that much. And I know this. And I go to him and I say, I don't see any detail in the shadow area. It feels overexposed. Can you? And I pull him aside. I don't, you know, the clients are there. I'm like, this doesn't look like, this looks like some trouble. Can we make some adjustments? And he dismisses me very audibly dismisses me and I just kind of walk and this is me with 20 years of experience and he said you just you don't even understand what you're looking at right now and I believe this some somewhere in my body I don't believe it but in this moment with his pedigree I go off and grab another coffee the film was unusable end of story you brought two or three of the things that I was hoping <laughs> would come up, which is there are moments in every profession, but especially in the creative profession, where we let 
some outside signals trick us into thinking that we're wrong. Mm-hmm. Like famous names. <laughs> How about that? Surely I do not know more than this executive producer who has worked with five people. I would just be, you know, overwhelmed if I met. I, and I knew in my bones I was right. So, yeah, it's very... Uh, tell me more about why you're asking. I'm so curious because obviously in creative it happens, but I'm sure it's happened to you as well. We're having a conversation and some of it is that I would love to have this help people who are in the early to mid stages of their career. Okay. As somebody who's been in client services, he's all career. I think that there's a mistake in the way that people approach resolving and being accommodating. And I think that while we're beating over the head on all the things we should look for, that we should let it go. And believe me, I've let go of things several times. As a senior person to his team, because somebody showed up with a good idea. As a junior person to somebody who was above me. And I've also, like, as a senior person, sometimes a couple of times bullied my way into something that was wrong. And it's been 30 years now. Like, the first conversation that I have with anybody who works with me is okay, your job is not to tell me what I want, your job is to tell me that I'm wrong. Call me out. If you think I'm wrong and you have a factual thing, explain it to me. But I think that there's not enough conversation around how do you find out when you shouldn't give up? I think the worst thing is to live with a compromise. Like the worst situation that anybody can be in, in any field, is to make a decision that doesn't feel real or true to them with the expectation that it will have a positive outcome and then that having a negative outcome because you violated your integrity, your trust, and you have nothing in your head. And over time, I think people who very strongly believe in the importance of being true to themselves, actually even living with a positive outcome <laughs> becomes difficult. What I was trying to get at is you walk into an agency as a creative person. Certain agencies are creative-led. Certain agencies are business-led, but you're being told that you're serving a client. And as a junior person, too many people beat you up into thinking serving a client is doing what the client wants and not finding out what is right of the client in your true belief and advocating for it until you get to the point that if there's a disagreement, you're either going to go along with it 100% on board and own it or walk away. And I think that the example that you just showed, those are the exact traps mid-level junior copywriter really puts the time into studying the client product, understanding the audience, comes up with some copy and, you know, very senior creative director who has only spent their time connecting with like, here's something from the client, get scared and tells them no. So I think what your story does is help saying like, okay, this is a red flag. Yeah, absolutely. Here's somebody who has more status than I have. Are they right? They should be. And the step should be not to immediately fight for it, but also to not immediately give up. It's like, go back, rethink it, look at the facts. I think that these are the facts. Can we talk about this again? I'm really struggling here. Help me understand. And I feel like as you're talking about all this, there's one thing that keeps coming up in my mind, both as someone who came up 
and had various leaders that inspired me. One that made me leave creative, not made me. I was very young and impressionable. I left creative altogether for three years. (laughs) Three years. I was certain that I had wasted it all of my time. That's how intense the influence of a leader can have on someone new. And what I want to say on both ends of the spectrum, both if you're coming up in the business or if you have the responsibility of mentoring and leading, both parties have to do something over and over and over. And that is ask questions and stay curious and don't stop asking until you understand it. We are not competing for going to Ivy League school A or B. This is business. You not understanding something to the degree to which it'll help you create a better solution is a failure for everyone, for the organization. If you as a leader not being cognizant that those below you understand that you're above them, it's your job to, to ask them questions, to check in with them. You know, and it goes both ways. It's like, do your work, do your work, ask questions, ask questions until there were no more questions or better ideas. Exactly. But as leaders, we do have to create that environment where questions are good. Which is actually a fabulous point. You know, you've, you've been a freelancer, but then you've also started your own agency, your own business. Tell me about how all your experience has shaped your belief of who you aspire to be as a leader? My leadership style has been shaped by getting feedback after I've left jobs. Sounds a little bit like a miss, doesn't it, to some degree? Well, what happened, and you know, you and I have worked in this volatile business called advertising for a long time. And there, this is a tough one for, uh, I have friends and family in other businesses, other categories of business, and they still to this day do not understand how you can be performing, winning awards, winning new business, working 80 hours a week and get let go. They can't, it just does not compute, does not compute. They don't understand it. It's called acquisition. But to jump over that, many of these Things have happened to me where, you know, it's an acquisition. Now there's two creative directors for every account. I get let go. Fine. And what happens is as I go on LinkedIn, it's a great example, and and say I'm open for work, refresh my resume, take a minute to breathe, collect myself. I would reach out for, you know, uh, recommendations from people I worked with, or I would get them without asking for them. And when I would read them, I would find out what kind of a leader I was, you know, and I don't need to say, I mean, obviously, it's the compliment parade. People who don't like working with you do not write these things. <laughs> so I'm smart enough to know it's the people who were passionate about their time with me. But it did give me some more granular things to both work on and understand in terms of where my strengths did lie, because they would be pretty consistent. So, I mean, that that shaped my leadership. Uh, one other thing, when I thought I had leadership down and I found out I didn't. Do you want to hear that one? I do. It was mid-career. I had to be sort of mid-40s, you know, where I, you know, I was kind of, I was like, I'm killing it. I was re-experiencing 
the self-righteousness of the 20s, of my 20s, <laughs> when I thought I knew everything. And then I realized in my 30s, I didn't know anything. And then I was back in my 40s going, no, wait, I've got it. And my new solution for a creative team was to hire the type of creatives that just get shit done. That's all I needed. I just needed 12 of those. It was not good. That is not what makes an amazing creative team. And it turns out an amazing creative team is made of the neurodiverse person who rolls in at 11 and says, it's a turkey with a pumpkin head. It's people who think differently, who have different work habits. It's the one who's there at 6 a.m. and the one who doesn't roll in till noon, but is there till midnight. It's the one who's always got to go to the opera and the fine art museum to get inspiration. It's the one who always has to work alone. It's the one who always has to work with five people. Great creative comes from diversity. Diversity of culture, of mind, of language, of I'm getting chills now. It's literally, it is that, that's the juice. I thought if I just had a bunch of doers who were very organized, never missed deadlines, that I could just kick back and just watch the fruits of my labor while I make a nice salary. That is not what happened. I got ideas that were dull. Everybody was the same. They thought the same. They were not the same, same. I'm exaggerating for the sake of my lesson to cut to the chase, but I learned the hard way that the most challenging mentees I've had <laughs> and I mean, sometimes very challenging, were sometimes the brightest lights in the room that through the harissa or the pepper or the, you know, they're the ones just adding this. They think differently. So you need all of it. This leads me to another question. You talk about diversity. You have diversity of creative passions and experiences. You mentioned you're a painter, you are a movie maker, you are creative and creative advertising. I'm also interested in this duality between I need to do some work alone and then the collaboration component. What are the key differences for you operating in those two mediums and what do you get, you know, from being alone versus creative? in a collaboration? What are the pros and the cons, if you will? For me personally, painting is my meditative healing place. It is the one space that is unedited. You know, I remember um, when you and I worked together, actually, I had been going through an incredibly painful, romantic breakup. And I don't remember thinking that painting was the answer, by the way, I just wanted to like, stay busy. And, <laughs> you know, and I would get up every day, I made myself this sort of promise to get up and write in my journal a bit, whatever I could get out, <laughs> the coffee, the journal, and go into my art room, nothing fancy, just a spare bedroom turned into an art room, and make a mark on the page, you know, and a lot of mornings, I walked into that room and made a mark and said, fuck you and walked out, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to create. But there's the rub, you know, inspiration does not come and then you paint, you paint and then inspiration comes. Okay, healing does not come like, oh, I feel like healing, you do, and then you heal. 
So I would make a mark on the page and uh, most mornings I would make a mark on the page and then another one and another one. And, and we're talking 20 minutes, 30 minutes in the morning every day before I saw you at that office. In six months, I had 10 paintings of Italy that I sold. Like it, it was this cumulative meditative healing place because when I paint, I have to be really present. It's not like I'm doing it mindlessly. I have to, there's the horizon line because I'm a realist painter. I'm not a total abstract non-representationalist. So I have to know the ocean is here. The sky is here. You know, the tree goes up, not that way. So I have to be present, but at the same time while I'm painting, it's like a, an intense, but not intense focused meditation. And I can also be really sad. I was able to sort of really tap into how, how the sadness was feeling, you know, that's a really long winded way to say it's very healing to do something for you. I don't care if it's making a bookshelf or cooking a really great meal. You know, you know what that feels like just cooking a great meal with music on. So I think that for me, that is part of my process and then enriches the collaboration side because I don't need to get everything out of the collaboration. All of my needs will not be met there anyway. And what are the advantages that a collaboration is? Oh, God, it's just better. The work's better. I won't say that about my painting because my paintings are mine. But, you know, I've never collaboratively painted but for instance, even right now with Salty Cactus, I work with a design director and uh, we just have a really good rhythm and it, 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 we never do it the same way twice. I don't know why. We trust each other completely. And when we go off and work alone, which is what we do, we get together. We always have a brief. We're, we're always strategically grounded. I can't not do that. And then we go off and work. And when we come back and get together the work gets better every single time. It just, it, it just gets better. It's just, it's more brain power, more, more beauty, more inspiration. You just said the work is more strategically grounded. And that ties me back to a little bit of a conversation that you and I had a couple of weeks ago around the fact that we're both people who wanted to stay out of the box that we were put in. I want to be creative too, as the business person. You're like, I design pretty picture, but I actually understand the business. How has that helped you? And how much of that desire to move outside the boundaries of the, you know, traditionally defined creative role has been part in your decision to start your own business? I think it's been huge, but I, I'll say I don't underestimate the need to tap into more gifted strategic people whether it's a brand planner. So behind the scenes, a lot of times um, with the jobs that we have, we'll just tap in from a consultative standpoint to someone we trust, either in the category, the space. We did some packaging last year and I tapped into a merchandiser in Boston who I've known for decades. And that was like his wheelhouse. So I think, you know, recognizing the assignment clearly and understanding how deep the 
clients, it's driven by clients, no matter which way you slice it, right? Some clients will really dig in and give you data and want to dig into the strategic underpinnings and some don't. And when they do, uh, we do tap in. Other than that, I think we really try to use what I'll say is our, you know, I try to use my strategic passion and common sense that I've learned from being around people like you, people who have done that part more than me, right? I mean, when I got to Digitas, where we both worked, I, d- I hadn't really seen a creative brief before. People had told me what to do <laughs> and what to make. But one of the things I'll never forget is being in a room. And I think I told you this because I think it was David Kenny. I'm sure I'm not outing him at all because he would be proud of this moment. We had done some like million dollar project for GM. And he said, I'm only going to ask you one question. Is this what they needed? (laughs) It was such a mic drop moment. And I say that story to say, I never forgot that. And one of the things I do with clients to this day, when we do a discovery consultation and we'll write a brief together, even that I will be consider my minimum entry level. I'll say, they'll say, we want a video, you know, usually like that goes viral. And I'll say, will a video solve your problem? Let's talk about your challenge. And to me, that's not a typical creative. I think that I learned in the room, right? Right. With that fabulous answer, let's tell people who may be interested in learning more about you, working with you, checking out your paintings. Again, where can they find you? Well, the business is saltycactuscreative.com. My name is Lynn Pulsifer, and strangely enough, there's only one other Lynn Pulsifer artist. She is in Maine. She is not me. (laughs) And then my fine art can be found at lynnpulsifergallery.com. Okay, and Lynn is spelled L-Y-N-N, and Pulsifer is P-U-L-S-I-F-E-R. Mm-hmm, and it's an unusual name, so it should come up pretty quickly. Perfect. So we'll move on to what I call the personal questions, even though I think this has been a blended conversation. And the first one you can, you, you can choose not to answer because we had a pretty detailed conversation about the personal role that painting plays in your life. But, you know, my, my first question that I normally ask is, do you have an interest or a hobby outside of your work? And how does that help you or relate to your work? And, and as I said, if like you're like, nope, I'm going to go with painting, we can move to the next question. Yeah, I think it is painting. So... Yeah, well, I think we can go. Mm-hmm. All right. So next question. Favorite question of the podcast. Every era has expressions, business jargon, cliches that are so overused that it lose their meaning. Which is the one that drives you crazy? I have more to say than one word, but I, I'll give you a few of them that drive me crazy. But then I have a, a little POV. Think outside the box. <laughs> Pivot. We're going to need to pivot. <laughs> cutting edge. What is that? What is cutting edge? Paradigm shift, just because I probably heard it too much. Uh, synergize. You know, they just feel a little overly important sometimes, I'll say. Just a little overly important. We do not cure cancer. We don't operate on I mean, you know, it is advertising. I'm sure you've, you've heard those jokes at work or at times it would be like, hey, we've got to go. That's, it's an emergency. I'm like, there is, there are no emergencies in advertising. Let's be clear. Like there, <laughs> sirens are not needed. 
you know, we're not losing a lot. Like, let's all take it down a notch. Yeah. So I'd say that. But what I was going to say about the question itself, though, is I feel like the jargon tree was fuller, low hanging fruit, was fuller of low hanging fruit when we were all in an office. That's an interesting perspective. I feel like it's a little less. You think it's because we don't spend as much time physically together and when you are in a meeting? I think so. That's a fascinating observation. Because the ones that were coming to mind were all from being at an agency in the office. And I haven't done that in five years. And I thought, where are the new? Where are, where are those new jargon words that are driving me crazy? And I thought, with the exception of AI and the singularity, which are driving me crazy. I'm wondering if it it's just a question. I think it's a great question for our listeners to solve. Let's <laughs> <laughs> Everyone go solve that. There's less jargon. I mean, there's Zoom fatigue. Yeah, Zoom fatigue. It's a big one. But that's real. It is. It's an interesting observation and a point of reflection for us to go and think about our experience and what are some of the things that have changed in the way we communicate mm-hmm. because of how we've communicated so much in the past few years? Yeah. So final question, food for the body or food for the soul, you can choose a recipe or a drink. If you go the body route or the soul, a book, a movie, a painting, a piece of art, a theater play, TV show, podcast, something that right now nourishes your soul. Oh, well, I mean, it has been in and out of my life, but right now it's a bit on the not obsession side, but it's five to seven days a week yoga. It's one hour a day that I'm breathing properly, that I'm truly in the moment. And it's allowing me to, first of all, sit at a desk and feel great in my back. I just, it's miraculous what yoga has been doing for my body, which then for my mind and for my spirit are miraculous. So that's what is nourishing me right now. Not that I don't make a fine beef bourguignon. (laughs) Fantastic. All right, Lynn, great as usual. Thank you for being on. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell all your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you subscribe to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows ratings and reviews like Apple Podcasts, Audible, Good Pods, Spotify, please leave us a stellar rating and a review. Five stars. Stick around because after the credits, I have a special musical treat by Susan Cattaneo. For more information on the episode and all the links, go to the website al4ep.com, spelled with the number four. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. Make sure you follow the podcast on whatever social platform you're using. On Twitter and Instagram, the handle is at AL4EDP with the letter D. And on Facebook, look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo who also played keyboards and drums with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now here is the musical treat. 
Since this episode is coming out on Christmas Day, here is the Susan Katana arrangement of a traditional song, Oh Holy Night. She sang all the harmonies and you will definitely agree that this sounds celestial. Enjoy. Oh 